When they're told that their own diverse team actually underperformed, their commitment to diversity tends to drop as well. Because if you think about it, you can imagine that the business case is going to help you get buy-in from the managers, but you're, you're basing your uh, arguments on promises that, if not realized, can sorely disappoint and therefore and disappoint about diversity as well. So I would, I would caution against uh, the impulse to convince through those arguments because you might in the short term achieve to do so, but what happens in the long term when the promises of diversity that are not as simple as the business case would suggest fail to materialize. Welcome back to the DEI podcast. I'm Max Gaston. My guest for today is Dr. Oriane Georgiak. Assistant Professor of Management and Organizations at Boston University's Questrom School of Business. Dr. Georgiak's research explores how people respond to organizations' messages about diversity and the effects of organizations' justifications for why they value diversity in members of underrepresented groups. In 2022, Dr. Georgiak published a piece in the Harvard Business Review entitled Stop Making the Business Case for Diversity. The article was based on a larger publication she contributed to the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which found that where employers' recruitment messaging included a business case for diversity, as opposed to a fairness case, prospective employees from underrepresented groups felt less inclined to work for those organizations and more likely to think that those employers would judge them based on stereotypes. We'll talk about Dr. Georgiak's research on the business and fairness cases for diversity, and then discuss the initial emergence of the fairness case by way of various laws and Supreme Court cases during the 1960s civil rights era. We'll also discuss the shift in argumentation post the civil rights era and how that evolution has not only informed the approach that many organizations take to diversity, but also informed how diversity is treated both in legislation and in Supreme Court case law. Here is Dr. Oriane Georgiak. Dr. Oriane Georgiak, welcome to the DEI podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oriane, nowadays, it's really common to hear organizations talking about the business case for diversity. And something that you and I have been talking about offline is the idea that you often hear people talking about the business case in these really glowing terms. And, you know, even people who work in diversity, equity and inclusion many of them will often use the business case as a justification for the importance of diversity in an organization. For example, many people will point to the 2020 McKinsey report that talks about how diversity is good for business. What's really interesting to me about your work is that you don't disagree that diversity can potentially promote better outcomes, but you challenge the notion that making a business case for diversity actually helps an organization reach its diversity goals. And what I love about your approach is that you center the research on the impact of the business case on members of the underrepresented populations that businesses are trying to attract with a business case. So just to get us started, what is the business case for diversity and what made you interested in exploring that topic? 
So the business case for diversity uh, is one instance of what I call diversity cases. Um, and I define a diversity case as an organization's public uh, rhetoric in which it explains why diversity matters to the organization. So it's really not just any statement about diversity. It's really a statement about diversity that explains the value of diversity for the organization. And it's a statement that speaks for the organization as a whole. And so theoretically, there are many different arguments that an organization could use to, to explain why diversity matters to, to them. But in practice, we find two broad categories. And one, the first one is the business case for diversity uh, that basically uh, argues that diversity is valuable for the benefits that it confers to organizations' performance. So in a sense, it frames diversity as a means to an end, which is increasing organizational performance or the organization's bottom line. And because it, 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 it frames diversity as a means to an end in this way, uh, I call that an instrumental diversity rhetoric. In contrast, I often uh, use the example of the fairness case for diversity, which is the, the second category. And this one is very different from the business case in the sense that it frames diversity as an end in itself, not as a means to increasing organizational performance. And because of this, I, uh, I characterize the fairness case for diversity as a non-instrumental diversity rhetoric. And so my, my interest in the business case initially arose uh, at a conference that I attended uh, when I was a PhD student. Um, I was attending um, very carefully all of the sessions that I could find that were talking about um, female representation in top leadership and on boards. And I was really struck by the fact that people there, either scholars or advocates uh, for diversity, we're really advocating in favor of gender representation on boards on the grounds of what women could bring to the table. And typically what they would argue is that uh, women are more communal, they're more warm, they're more ethical, and so on and so forth. So the list uh, is long. And that on the ground of the benefits that bringing warmth and communality and ethicality on boards uh, would confer to the organization, we should include women. And so this really rubbed me the wrong way, in a sense, for two reasons. The, the first is that I'm a psychologist by training. Um, and so in psychology, we knew full well that using uh, stereotypes, be they positive, it can be actually very harmful. Uh, so I was very surprised that people were advocating for gender diversity uh, using gender stereotypes. And the second thing was, I wasn't sure why people were going, were making such an effort in making a case that women can contribute something extra to organizations. I was thinking, well, isn't it a matter of equality and, and, and equal opportunity for women to access those spaces as opposed to them having to contribute something uniquely feminine, quote unquote, to justify their presence in those leadership spaces. But that's exactly what the business case is about, is valuing diversity because of what you can extract from it. And so because it rubbed me the wrong way, I decided to investigate whether it rubbed uh, other people the wrong way too. Uh, and I focused on members of underrepresented groups. There was a phrase you used just now to characterize the business case for diversity. You called it an instrumental diversity rhetoric 
which if I'm understanding you correctly, is basically messaging from an organization about diversity that fundamentally tells prospective employees from underrepresented groups, hey, we want you to apply and we value you, but not necessarily because of your qualifications, but rather because of what your identity can do to advance our organizational goals. And that's really interesting to me because I think that the practice of overvaluing identity in this way while undervaluing merit is sort of adjacent to the practice that a lot of organizations take within their actual workforce of overvaluing diversity while undervaluing inclusion. Because if your business case is successful in bringing about a diverse workforce filled with folks from all walks of life, but then you don't actually do the work to make that space inclusive for them, you know, then making the business case to get them there in the first place starts to seem really performative and as a result maybe won't yield any of the potential benefits that can actually come from diversity. So it's a good question that you ask, which is basically uh, what happens at the intersection between diversity rhetoric and diversity practices. That is uh, very much one of the steps that I want to take for my future research. But I would still, I would still probably push back a little bit on your conclusion because I think, irrespective of what the diversity practices are in an organization, the business case in and of itself, because of its instrumentality, which is the key psychologically active ingredient, actually has detrimental consequences for members of underrepresented groups in and of itself. And the reason, in a sense, is that to understand what the business case says, you have to go back and really consider what the business case says. So the business case really assumes that different groups have different skills, different experiences, different viewpoints, different work styles, interaction styles, I mean, you name it. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. Basically, what it uniquely does something that the fairness case or the moral case doesn't do is that it links these very differences to performance outcomes for the organization. Essentially, what it's saying and assuming is that it is those very differences that, uh, quote unquote, diverse people, which is a term that I don't like at all, as you know, the unique assets that these people are going to bring to the table is what is going to drive up the company's performance. And so in, in making this assumption, what the business case essentially does is it justifies for organization who interview job candidates, it justifies the idea of looking at these candidates through the lens of their social identities when the organization is trying to anticipate and, and is forming expectations about what they could contribute. And so the problem is that if we switch perspective for a minute, we're talking about individuals in groups that have been historically stigmatized, have been historically excluded. And so to them, being seen through the lens of their identity, as opposed to being judged solely on their merit, is a very threatening experience. And so just by, again, like talking about diversity as an asset for, for organizations' performance, the business case really infuses the room, if you want, with a very threatening atmosphere. So again, like the idea of being seen 
through the lens of your social identity. For instance, if I'm a woman, like as a female engineer, rather than just as an engineer, and what I can bring as a female engineer rather than just as an engineer is a very threatening experience for a woman. And the same would uh, apply also to other groups uh, along the dimensions of race, sexual orientation, and so on and so forth. So the discourse of the business case per se is problematic. And I agree that the other diversity practices can also in parallel be problematic, but the discourse per se actually contains the seed of this, this phenomenon that we psychologists call social identity threat, which is the concern of being devalued on the grounds of your social identity. Mm. Orian, I want to discuss the research you recently conducted on the business case. In 2022, you published a paper in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology entitled The Business Case for Diversity Backfires, Detrimental Effects of Organizations' Instrumental Diversity Rhetoric for Underrepresented Group Members' Sense of Belonging. The study involved more than 2,500 individuals from underrepresented groups, including LGBTQ professionals, women in STEM fields, and Black American college students. And you asked those 2,500 participants to read messages from a prospective employer's webpage, which made either a business case for diversity, a fairness case, or offered no justification at all for valuing diversity in the workplace. You then had those 2,500 participants report on how much they felt like they would belong at each of those organizations, how concerned they were that they would be judged based on stereotypes, and how interested they would be in taking a job there given the messages that they had read. I'd like you to discuss what your findings were within those participants from underrepresented groups, but what I'd also like to have you do is Talk about something else you discuss in the paper, which is your findings on the impact that the business case has on majority group members. For instance, white Americans, men in STEM, and, and other majority groups. And one of the quotes that I thought was really great to capture this point in the paper is when you say that a handful of studies have shown that after being exposed to a business versus a fairness case for diversity, white Americans report more negative beliefs about inclusion and exhibit more biased decision-making toward Black job applicants. So if you could talk about the findings in your study, but then also discuss and maybe walk us through the research you um, that you've discussed in the paper on how majority group members also respond to the business case and the fairness case for diversity, I think that that would really help us to understand a little bit more. So we've been talking about how the business case can create a threatening experience uh, for members of underrepresented groups. And we did find evidence of this among women in STEM. And by STEM, I mean science, technology, engineering, and math. So in those fields where women are severely underrepresented, um, they did feel threatened when they read a business case rather than a fairness case. The same was true for African-American students and the the same was true for uh, LGBTQ plus professionals. And in turn, uh, when, when members of underrepresented groups uh, feel a sense of threat uh, around their social identity and feel concerned about being seen through that lens only, that can lead them to question their sense of belonging to the setting that makes them feel uh, threatened. And this is exactly what we found. We found that when job seekers from these groups 
read the statement, a business case rather than a fairness case of a prospective organization, they anticipated feeling a lower sense of belonging to that prospective organization and in turn that predicted lower interest in applying to the firm. Hmm. And um, interestingly, when we looked at men in STEM, we found no effect of the type of diversity case on them. So whether they read a business case or a fairness case, uh, really there was no difference for them. It was just women specifically who were uh, detrimentally affected. However, uh, when we looked at white Americans in contrast to uh, African-Americans, we ran this survey, um, this study post George Floyd, actually, and we found a slightly different trend there, a pattern whereby, as usual, African-Americans did feel more threatened by the business case than the fairness case or a control case by white Americans as well. I mean, to a lesser extent, but they also showed some sign of threat uh, whereby they were concerned about being seen by the organization through the lens of their white uh, racial identity. And so we were very puzzled by this. And the, the best way we could make sense of it was to think uh, and remind ourselves that after George Floyd's murder, race was very uh, present in the public uh, debate. And so given in this context, the, with all organizations issuing statements about, about in the wake of that event, the business case could have taken a very different flavor for, for white Americans at that point, thinking, oh, so now you are saying that different people bring different things and you, that you are valuing uh, minority people for the, the different uh, contributions that they can bring to the organization, but I am white, so I don't bring anything extra. So if you start seeing me through my white social identity, you're unlikely to value what I have to contribute. And that could actually have been the sense of threat uh, that white experience. So again, course George Floyd, it seems that even members of well-represented group might be a bit threatened, but in all cases, members of underrepresented groups have been threatened all along by the business case. Mm. It's really interesting because it's almost as if the business case has the potential to create a sense of identity threat for everyone. Majority group members like white Americans and underrepresented group members like women in STEM, LGBTQ plus professionals, black Americans alike. But the difference is that with white Americans, the identity threat seems to emerge out of a sense that with all else being equal in the way of merit, if we then look to identity, it's not the white or the male identity that's likely going to get valued when the goal is diversity. And so maybe some of those people are feeling threatened because all else being equal, their identity won't make them competitive in the job market. Whereas for black people and other underrepresented group members, it sounds like the concern is more that the employer is going to overvalue their identity and not really view them as qualified or competent, which to me would understandably also not feel good and would create identity threat because it's essentially saying that you're just a token hire and that you're being valued here not for your skills or your intelligence like your peers are, but rather strictly for your identity and what that identity does for us as an organization. Yeah, and that's literally what 
the business case is saying. So they're not making this up. This is not in their heads. It's what the company is telling them. Uh, we want you for what you can contribute and what your contribution can do to our performance. So in a sense, this idea of a feeling for a member of a, an underrepresented group, this idea that you may feel that your social identity, so your race, your gender, your sexual orientation in this moment, uh, when you're interacting with a company is very salient. Uh, again, like it's not in your head. It's, it's, in, it's in the context, again, to highlight the importance of context. The context actually signals has through cues that this is a relevant dimension that the organization is um, thinking about and is thinking about in this particular way of assigning different skills to different groups and assuming these skills are going to uh, increase the bottom line. So, so again, I, I want to highlight that it's not the case that, oh, you know, members of underrepresented groups just have to forget about this idea and focus on, you know, their own merits independent of race. The organization is basically almost biasing the environment for some groups versus others. Now, I agree with you. And again, that highlights the importance of the context that usually uh, members of well-represented groups do not experience their social identity as very salient. Um, this is due to the fact that uh, almost by definition of being a member of a majority group, they're usually well represented in most environments. So their identity is not particularly salient and they're not necessarily seen through that lens by other members uh, of their group, um, which is very different from a minority who enters a non-diverse context. And again, like it's, it's very different from others and therefore they're you know, experience their identity as very salient. So usually members of underrepresented, uh, of well-represented groups do not really, do not have their identity engaged necessarily in those moments when they're interviewing with uh, companies, uh, contrary to members of underrepresented groups, except, for instance, maybe when there are events happening in the real world that increase the salience of race in everybody's consciousness, for instance, because of an event as big as the murder of George Floyd, where suddenly race is omnipresent in the public debate and a discourse like the business case can also threaten white Americans. But in the absence of this enormous um, cues in the environment, typically members of well-represented groups do not think about these things but this is a burden that's almost exclusively borne uh, by um, members of underrepresented groups. Mm. Yeah, and this is going somewhat outside the scope of the paper, I think, but it just occurs to me, Oriane, that for the job seekers, the negative impact of seeing the employer's business case for diversity very likely does not stop at the business case itself, right? Because if they go on to work for that employer and they come in already feeling like this employer isn't valuing me so much for my skills and for my merit, but rather because my identity helps the organization achieve its diversity goals, you can imagine that the negative impact that perspective might have on the employee would carry over into the job and, and into their performance in the role, maybe even leading to a self-fulfilling prophecy of underperformance on their part. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're just at the beginning of this investigation. You correctly point out that uh, the story doesn't end when the person applies. 
it doesn't end when the person leaves after the job interview, which is something that I'm interested in, um, the impact of the business case on performance in those interviews. The, the person continues to swim in this ocean of instrumentality after it has entered the organization. And so what the long-term uh, effect of actually being surrounded with this idea that groups, uh, different groups bring different things, and these things is, are what improve the performance. And so it would be fascinating actually to follow individuals along their journey in the company to see if, for instance, companies that have a business case rather than a fairness case, for instance, experience more of a leaky pipeline. That being said, like um, the paper that we have that shows already the, the detrimental consequences of the business case, it ends with this perhaps sobering thought, which is uh, building on, on a theory from organizational sociology, and that is called institutional theory. And that makes the point that we think organizations adopt practices, messages, etc., because of their effectiveness. In fact, that's not the case. Organizations adopt practices, messages, because of the status and the legitimacy that they confer. Basically, this theory makes the assumption that there are some actors, for instance, uh, in a field or like the business world that are more central than others, that have more status than others, and that they are the trendsetters in terms of what is being done, what is being said about a certain topic, and the others follow suit, the peripheral firms. And so when you consider that firms that are as central as McKinsey or Credit Suisse or uh, UBC regularly publish reports that tout the business case for diversity, you can, you can see through that theoretical lens of neo-institutional theory how that rhetoric keeps spread to all organizations and how despite being told about the detrimental effects of the business case, some organizations may be reluctant to changing how they justify their commitment to diversity because of the fear of losing legitimacy and status if they speak about diversity in a different way from those central, extremely well-established actors. So mm. this is essentially my hope that those findings make their way to the most central actors so that they can start changing from the system from the core. Orian, something I thought was really fascinating in your paper was this discussion on where the business and fairness cases actually come from. You talk about how the fairness case for diversity has its roots in part in the civil rights and the women's rights movements of the 1960s and 70s. And if you stop and consider that for a moment, how the fairness case for diversity had its genesis in the struggle for rights during that era, it's impossible not to acknowledge the fact that we didn't require a business case to pass the Civil Rights Act or the Americans with Disabilities Act. We did those things because, well, because people fought for it with their lives, but also because it mattered for the deeper values of equity and justice that were growing stronger in the American psyche during the civil rights movement. And it's just striking to me to think how much we've departed from that place. For instance, with the recent Supreme Court cases that did away with affirmative action, where during oral arguments, the court was really pressing the parties to make the case basically for why diversity was good for the business of education such that affirmative action should survive strict scrutiny. 
it just seems like nowadays we feel a greater need than in previous times to justify diversity by making that business case argument. So can you just say a little bit about where we started and how we got to where we are now in terms of the justifications for supporting diversity? Yes, um, I love this question because um, one of the one of the things I noticed when I started working on this project is how much it's hard for us to take a step back and realize that the business case isn't the only way to promote diversity and isn't either the only legitimate uh, rhetoric that you can use. Uh, but we're so immersed in it, and sometimes I say we swim in an ocean of instrumentality that it's really hard to almost think out of the box and consider alternative ways to 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 advocate for diversity. But what's interesting as well is that, as you said, the fairness case was the first rhetoric to emerge really around uh, diversity. And it was, it did emerge in the 1960s, 1970s, in the wake of those um, movements, the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movements. And, and the assumption there was that organizations actually had a role to play in promoting equality uh, and, and, and furthering progress in society. And so initially, the um, Equal Employment uh, Opportunity Commission and Affirmative Action were actually legal steps taken to uh, promote equal opportunity, but also redress past injustices. And so here you see a strong moral basis as the justification for the steps, uh, the legal steps that have been adopted to promote diversity. And you have to remember that this was a time, I mean, just after the, the Second World War, uh, when organizations, actually, there were a lot of debates about how organizations were supposed to contribute to society. So this notion that organizations are only there to generate profits is actually a much more recent one. And I'm, I'm going to uh, talk about it in a second, but it's, it's hard for us to realize that all of the discourses that we're having about corporate responsibility today that seem novel and avant-garde are actually not so novel at all. But so to go back to the fairness case, so it emerged in the 1960s and 70s and gradually started to fade away because of a, a number of uh, major changes in the political, uh, economical, and business areas. So the first was uh, in the political domain, there was an enormous, from the 1980s, there was an enormous backlash around uh, against affirmative action uh, and the, uh, the EOC. You can think of the election of Ronald Reagan actually uh, leading to this this backlash against uh, those those steps that have been um, achieved uh, decades earlier. In the uh, economic circles, there were also increasingly more talks about this thesis by Milton Friedman um, that the only corporate responsibility that organizations have is actually to make profits. So, so um, unless something can be instrumentalized to increase the bottom line, there was no justification in organizations pursuing it, and that includes diversity. Uh, so this is the Chicago School of Thought. And then in the business circles, um, there was a, a seminal report, uh, a seminal report, sorry, that we know now was pretty flawed in its conclusion, uh, but it did make an impression, uh, a tremendous one at the time. And that report was called Workforce 2000. And essentially, the conclusions were that diversity was going to become a, a business imperative, whether organizations were interested in it or not. 
because it predicted by that by the um, the year two thousand, the traditional white male American workforce would no longer be the norm in the U.S. and that women underrepresented groups and and immigrants would actually be the majority of the U.S. workforce, and it made a, a problematic assumption, basically claiming that those groups were less educated, culturally different from the traditional workforce, and that if organizations wanted to avoid a workforce shortage, um, they really needed to to go ahead and, and, and start managing diversity to be able to snatch up the few people who were highly educated in these new uh, talent pools. And so you can see that at the intersection of all these changes, suddenly the idea that diversity is a moral imperative slightly fades away, becomes outdated, uh, and and slowly this idea that um, diversity becomes a, a business asset, a necessity, an imperative, an urgency, actually gains grounds and become and becomes the norm. But again, like this is from the 1980s, so pretty recent uh, compared to what we could imagine. Mm. Given that there was this neoliberal backlash that you described where more people were growing resistant to ideas like affirmative action. Did any part of the business case emerge from the view that we needed more ammunition, you know, something beyond the fairness case to respond to those people who were opposing diversity initiatives? And so the same people who were making the fairness case perhaps felt the need to now make a business case in defense of those efforts? So interestingly, it's almost the opposite. We tend to think of the business case as a very... Uh, positive uh, rhetoric about diversity um, that's celebrating the unique things that members of underrepresented groups can actually contribute. If you go back in history and look again at why and how it emerged, there's a different picture that emerges. In fact, the business case in, in emerged, as I said, in the wake of this backlash against affirmative action, and it emerged almost as a strategy to shield organizations from legal oversight of their diversity practices to regain some organizational autonomy against uh, you know legal powers that were purportedly uh, forcing them to to follow some diversity practices such as um, affirmative action or uh, things like that and try to say well you don't really need to supervise us on this because look like diversity is good for us. Like we inherently care about it. So how about we do this our own way because it's good for us and you don't have to actually look too much into what we're doing. And so in a sense, mm. the business case was really almost, I mean, I don't want to say reactionary, but almost a reaction to what, I mean, to the, the legal progress that had happened before, but that had been seen as very invasive of organizations um, of organizations' independence or autonomy. And so a way to regain this autonomy was to say, in fact, this whole notion of morality is really not the point. The point is it's good for us, so we don't need as much supervision from legal powers and and uh, an intrusion in our practices. Mm. That's really fascinating. So businesses were saying, you don't need to have this watchdog mentality over us because diversity already matters for our bottom line. I wonder, was that just a pretext to get the government off of their backs? Or 
were they actually taking diversity into consideration because they did believe in the business case and that it would ultimately be good for business? It's it's um it's a really good question. Um, all of what I've been saying right now um is has been um, documented by research and sociology. I myself am a psychologist. Uh, so I haven't actually studied the consequences of um, this adoption or whether the commitment to diversity in this instrumental way was genuine. I think the lack of diversity in organizations today in 2023 compared to, you know, like the 1970s, let's say, of course, there's been progress, but probably far less that you can have expected if everybody was fully behind the idea and pushing for it. So I think that in and of itself probably answers the question of how much they believed in it. But in management research, um, there's actually work that suggests that the people, the leaders who actually call for, ask for a business case, often fail to be convinced by it. They ask for it because baseline, they don't necessarily believe in the idea of diversity. Um, so they ask for facts, but in turn, because because there is no motivation, it fails to convince them and it doesn't trigger some moral emotions such as outrage around uh, against um, inequality that is typically a precursor of action in favor of diversity. So all in all, there's, I mean, it, it's hard to uh, conclude definitely, but there is evidence that the business case isn't doing much of a difference in terms of convincing people. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, Oriane. One of the things that you say in the paper is that People perceive economic arguments as more effective and legitimate than moral arguments for selling social issues like diversity or corporate social responsibility to leaders. And it reminds me of something I once heard Christine Lagarde, the former head of the IMF and the current president of the European Central Bank, talk about at the G20 summit when she was discussing international human rights. And what she described on that occasion was how many people in the private sector are not really moved by the moral or the fairness case, but that when you talk to those same people about the business case and explain how social justice issues affect dollars and cents, then their ears perk up and they start listening. But now it sounds like when it comes to the effectiveness of making the business case, maybe it's actually not that effective, even for leaders in those positions. It might, it might not be, actually, as if we really want to pause and examine the content of the business case, what we find is that there are also very problematic and simplified conclusion about the effects of diversity. I like that when you introduced me at the beginning of the podcast, you said you don't question the idea that there are benefits associated to diversity. And it's true, but I want to qualify this in the sense that when the business case says that diversity is positive for organizations' performance, uh, it is a gross simplification. We know from research in, um, in psychology and in management that diversity has many positive effects, in particular for creativity, for uh, the soundness of uh, group decision-making, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but unfortunately, diversity also can have detrimental effects. Uh, we can find this around uh, turnover in diverse teams, uh, team conflict sometimes, at least initially. I mean, it, over time, it can evolve, but these detrimental effects of diversity also exist. And so after looking at 50 years of data on, on this type of research, because a lot of scholars have been fascinated by 
the, what I call the question of the veracity of the business case, which is, is it true or not? As opposed to my question, which is, what are the consequences of the business case? So a lot of scholars have been focusing on this question of veracity. And so we have tremendous uh, data, amounts of data to, to look at those effects. And so meta-analysis that have tried to com compile all these results and reach almost a, uh, on average conclusion have found no evidence actually um, that diversity yields positive effects on diversity. It doesn't yield negative effects either. It's just a null relationship because, I mean, if you think about it, it's so difficult to move the needle on performance that just diversity on its own doesn't necessarily uh, do that. Um, so the research right now is no longer looking at the simplistic question of is diversity bad or good for performance? Rather, it's looking at the factors that need to be present in teams and organizations to unlock the positive effects of the, the of diversity without, you know, powering at the same time the negative effects. So this is a much more nuanced uh, discussion, uh, but the big business case completely ignores this and make promises um, that are not scientifically grounded in evidence, uh, which is in and of itself problematic. And that's something that I study uh, myself in one of my projects. And I find evidence that managers actually who are presented with the business case rather than nothing at all. Uh, and so are presented with promises about what diversity can accomplish um, when they're told that their own diverse team actually underperformed their commitment to diversity tends to drop as well. Because if you think about it, you can imagine that the business case is going to help you get buy-in from managers, but you're, you're basing your uh, arguments on promises that, if not realized, can sorely disappoint and therefore and disappoint about diversity as well. So I would, I would caution against uh, the impulse to convince through those arguments, because you might in the short term achieve to do so, but what happens in the long term when the promises of diversity that are not as simple as the business case would suggest fail to materialize? Mm. Yeah, it really makes me think about how much care is actually required to meet the expectations that organizations set when they embark upon greater racial integration and diversity among their ranks. Because what you're identifying is essentially that we can't hope with any degree of confidence to unlock the benefits of diversity by relying exclusively on this checkbox approach. You can't just say, here's a black person, here's a woman, here's a gay person, here's a straight white guy. Let's drop this random assortment of identities all in a room together and expect that the benefits of diversity are just going to emerge like magic. Instead, what it actually sounds like is organizations really need to put greater effort into developing a culture of inclusion to truly bring out those benefits that we know are certainly a potential when you have a diverse workforce, but could otherwise die on the vine without an inclusive environment to cultivate them. It also reminds me of a conversation we had recently on the show with Dr. Kevin Coakley, who does research on the imposter phenomenon. And one of the things that Kevin talked about was how conditions for a lot of students of color in higher education, for instance, aren't really conducive to bringing out their full potential. 
and instead tend to make many of them feel more like imposters, which impacts their performance. And I suppose that you can view that example as somewhat of an analog to workplace diversity, where if you don't create the cultural environment in an organization for someone to feel like they can belong and thrive, you know, if you just put them in the room, it doesn't mean that those latent abilities are going to unlock themselves and Likewise, the latent benefits of diversity might not emerge within the collective either. Absolutely. Um, I mean, everything we know in social psychology actually highlights the importance of not only the individual capacities, but also of the context on those individual capacities. So it's always, I mean, what, what you see um, in individuals, how they think, how they feel, how they behave, is always at the intersection of individual disposition. And the context. And that's one of the big, big uh, legacies of social psychology. And, and one of the, the, almost the illustrations of this in, in my discipline is um, the notion of stereotype threat, uh, where basically some contexts can actually create gaps in performance between different groups. So think, for instance, uh, men and women on math tests, where women are stereotyped as being less good at math than men. When you when there is an environment uh, in which people take the test that reminds even very subtly of those stereotypes, you observe typically a gap in performance between men and women. But when there is an environment that debunks those stereotypes, again, very subtly, it doesn't have to be very overt, but it's, as you would say, more inclusive and, and more identity safe, you observe typically that that, that gap in uh, performance across men and women is bridged. That gap doesn't exist anymore. And you can, and that, that result has been replicated for decades uh, across different identities. So you, you can have, you know, for instance, white Americans and black Americans on tests, um, SATs, for instance, that are uh, supposedly predictive of academic performance. Um, you can have the reverse uh, also uh, with sports performance, athletics uh, between uh, black Americans and white Americans, where because black Americans are stereotyped that's better, white Americans typically perform uh, less well on those tests. I mean, there are stereotypes attached to all groups, but the, the, the issues uh, on the societal level that we have is that very often the most detrimental uh, stereotypes are actually attached to social identities that are underrepresented, have been traditionally stigmatized. And so those very uh, hurtful stereotypes actually can have detrimental consequences on their performance in very key and valued domains in society, and that can contribute to hold them back. Orian, I want to revisit some of the points you made on the fairness case emerging out of the civil rights era and the business case subsequently arising from a backlash against civil rights. And I'd be interested specifically in having you discuss the extent to which the evolution from the fairness to the business case might have informed the changing perspectives in the law of the Supreme Court in how the court was addressing topics like diversity and social justice. Can you just talk about how the changing diversity rhetoric may have paralleled or even informed how diversity is viewed in the law? Right. So the interesting thing, again, with, with the evolution and uh, almost the life cycles of the fairness case and, and the business case is this evolution, this, this transition almost from moral, 
legal rhetoric towards more managerial rhetoric in the form of, of the business case. And so what you see is that, that for instance, in 1954, the Supreme Court had to, you know, statute on the Brown versus Board of Education case. And basically, the, the decision really highlighted that the integration of public schools uh, was to be pursued on the grounds of human dignity. So around, again, like notions of uh, morality, equal opportunities, etc. And over the years, uh, as I described earlier through um, the 1980s, etc., you see this transition whereby legal uh, conceptions about diversity progressively start to be infused with uh, managerial values uh, as this notion of diversity becomes co-opted by organization in the form of diversity. We need to get on board with diversity, otherwise we're going to um, have a, a, a workforce shortage, basically. Diversity is no longer a, a moral issue, but it's, it's an issue of reaping the benefits that it can yield for organizational performance. And this is what is called uh, the managerialization of law, where, again, those legal con concepts get a little bit uh, diluted into uh, business speak. Uh, but what is interesting as well in this is that uh, it circles back to the legal world and it influences the Supreme Court in a new way. Um, so, for instance, you can see that in 2003, there was this... Um, Gruder versus Bollinger case, and then suddenly the, the Supreme Court actually sanctions this, this idea that race can be taken into account into admissions, not solely, but in a holistic approach. Why? Because diversity actually confers educational benefits, which is a very different reason from the one that was invoking in 1954 uh, human dignity. And I'm saying 2003, but actually that opinion in the legal world had already emerged in 1978 in um, regions of the University of California versus Beck, where, again, this idea of the value of diversity for the classroom, for preparing students to the world and for the educational experience uh, was already an argument that was voiced in a Supreme Court case. And so what you see is that the legal, the, you see this almost cycle where the legal ideas infuse organization that transform them into this managerial kind of conception of instrumentality as a business asset. And that circles back to the Supreme Court, the legal world um, that suddenly sanctions those ideas that are essentially its ideas from the past, but completely transformed and now makes it a rational that the legal world accepts for rulings. So, you know, this theory of um, managerialization of law might be of interest uh, to some of our listeners. It's really fascinating because again, and as you stated so effectively, we came from a place where as a country, our legal system didn't require a business case for diversity for us to do things like end racial segregation in schools. And yet now we've found ourselves, in part no doubt because of this managerialization theory you describe, in a place where if you look at the progeny of Grutter in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard and UNC, the Supreme Court is demanding and yet nevertheless finding unpersuasive business case arguments for why affirmative action should be protected at all in schools. 
So it's not just an evolution from a fairness lens to a business case lens. We've gotten to the place where legally, the business case for diversity isn't even working anymore to support affirmative action in schools. And as I'm having flashbacks to the oral arguments from the Harvard and UNC cases, the court incessantly inquiring what the educational value of diversity is to justify affirmative action in the educational context, it's just a line of questioning that we didn't entertain in cases like Brown, and at the very least didn't engage in previous affirmative action cases with such skepticism when we were exploring this type of issue before. We didn't as a society, um, and you can one can only wonder what would have happened if we had been asking those questions. Would the school be integrated today? Would, would they still be segregated? This just wasn't the reason why integration in, of public schools was done. And in a sense, this obsession with the benefits of diversity as a, as a motor for, for advancing diversity it is somehow problematic because one, again, I've been saying how the evidence, the empirical evidence is mixed about the effects of diversity. So focusing only on, on the benefits is actually half of the picture, really. But, but the, other, the other thing is, if we focus on the benefits and those benefits for whatever reason, for instance, because the climate isn't very inclusive in organizations or schools or um, those benefits do not materialize. What what we what will we do? Do we abandon the idea of diversity and we're like, okay, it's actually useless, so let's turn the page and forget about it? Like the idea of pushing diversity was never because it was useful, and it shouldn't be because it's useful. It it is that it's just not the point, and and it's hugely problematic if at some point we decide that we just haven't seen the benefits of diversity, um, in terms of implications for what comes next. And so, I mean, when we, when we think about we're going to push diversity and, and advance diversity because of what these people can bring, if these people don't bring anything beyond majority groups, then, then what? Then we, we go back to excluding them. I mean, it's, it's really disturbing to think about if you push in extremis the logic of the business case, what it implies, really. And so I, my hope is that people actually start pondering a little bit more about all of the, the assumptions and implications that are baked into it and, and maybe stop using it as much and coming back and not be afraid to come back maybe to, uh, as, as you said, to the origins of this is a matter of fairness. This really is a matter of equality. Orion, before we wrap up, I'm just curious to know where is your research on diversity rhetoric taking you next? Absolutely. So the question uh, of the mixed case, so a mix between the fairness case and, and the business case is one that, that comes back very often. And, and it's, it's definitely one that is top of the list for me. What are the consequences of a mixed case for white Americans uh, in terms of what it does to them in terms of their attitudes and behaviors towards diversity? Um, my colleague Sophie Trowalter actually showed that the mixed case has the same detrimental effects as the business case. But in terms of what it does to members of underrepresented groups belonging, we don't know that yet. And this is definitely something that I'm interested in. 
I can only speculate at this point because I haven't gathered the, the, the data. I, I first wanted to understand what the fairness case and the business case do uh, in isolation before, you know, trying to amalgamate them into this new uh, kind of hybrid case. But I have a few ideas here. Sometimes people think, okay, well, the business case is the most widespread, the most popular. How about we uh, sprinkle a little bit of fairness on top and perhaps uh, it will just uh, take away the negative effects. To me, I have the opposite intuition. I think that actually adding a little bit of fairness case on top of a business case is going to basically cancel out the positive effects of the fairness case. Another way to say it would be to say, imagine that you make a long fairness case and then you finish by an instrumental business case argument. So you've been telling me that you're committed to fairness, equal opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. And then you say, but also it's good for us. Wouldn't that invalidate the whole like disinterested, non-instrumental rhetoric of the beginning? Well, in the same way, I believe that, um, you know, making an elaborate business case about how you're actually expecting to derive many benefits from diversity for your performance and then finishing, but also it's the right thing to do. How convincing is that? You know? So I think any mix of the fairness case and the business case would probably align with the business case in terms of effect, but uh, that remains to be demonstrated empirically. And that's certainly a direction that I'm interested in taking. Dr. Oriane Georgiak is an assistant professor of management and organizations at Boston University's Questrom School of Business. She's also co-author of the recent paper, The Business Case for Diversity Backfires, Detrimental Effects of Organizations' Instrumental Diversity Rhetoric for Underrepresented Group Members' Sense of Belonging. Oriane, thank you for your insightful work and thank you again for joining me on the DEI podcast. The DEI podcast at Notre Dame Law School is produced by Notre Dame Studios. Every episode, we sit down with important voices in law, culture, society, and business to talk about issues that touch all of us. If you liked what you heard today, become a subscriber and get notified every time we upload an episode. And tune in next time for another great conversation on issues that touch us all. Until then, take care. <laughs>